It's the Adam Ritz Show, a social awareness talk show touching on fellowship, leadership, philanthropy, and more. Adam hosts the show on location from coast to coast, interviewing college students, student athletes, campus administrators, professional athletes, and social experts about social issues ranging from bullying to Twitter and everything in between. And now, it's your social awareness radio host, Adam Ritz. I'm Adam Ritz, and today the Adam Ritz Show is on campus in Manhattan, Kansas, and we are broadcasting at K-State. It's Kansas State University in front of this live studio audience. Okay, thank you for the warm welcome. Our guest is Brian Rowletter, Brian uh, B-Row, as they know him on the basketball team. You play basketball here for K-State. Tell us about the, yeah, there they are, woo! Uh, the Hoops team, men's basketball, K-State. Tell us about it real quick. Uh, well, we're pretty good, I think. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> no, uh, we got a lot of returning guys and a uh, great group of guys. We work hard, and we're really excited about the season. Okay, and you are uh, a team leader and on the uh, SAC, the Student Advisory Athletic Committee. Uh, so you uh, have been chosen as a spokesperson to talk about community service and charity and philanthropy. Uh, you get involved here in the Manhattan community. What's your role with the basketball team and the student athletes here at K-State? You know, K-State, we do a good job, especially through SAC, of giving back to the community and everything they do for us. So uh, we put on a lot of events throughout the year where the student-athletes uh, have a lot of interaction with the community. Uh, things like Special Olympics, uh, Cats for Cans, where we go out and collect cans uh, for an organization here in Manhattan, the uh, Flint Hills Bread Basket, to give to those in need. Uh, Tip-off for TP, um, collecting uh, paper goods like toilet paper and things like that to give back to those in need. Uh, adopt a family at Christmas time, helping out those families who may not be able to afford gifts for their children to have them have a good Christmas. So things like that. That's a lot. I mean, do you have time to play basketball? Uh, yes, somehow I do. I mean, if you would just cut out the community service, you guys would win the national championship every year. If only that was the case, yeah. <laughs> well, let's go to the Special Olympics real quick. We do a lot of work with the Special Olympics. Um, talk about the smile you see on a, on a young special athlete's face when you work with them. Uh, it's the best. When, when you see them having fun and you can tell they're having fun, you're having fun too. And uh, just seeing them going through the different stations and things like that, I mean, it makes your day knowing that you, you felt make somebody else's day. We appreciate your work in the community. It's inspiring to all of us uh, listening and myself to know young adults. Get involved. Get off the couch. Get in your community. Make a difference on planet Earth. Let's have a round of applause for B-Row here one more time and all the student athletes at K-State. It's Kansas State University. Thank you so much. Fellowship, leadership, and philanthropy. Conversations and interviews from all over America. It's the Adam Ritz Show. I'm in the bowels of the Duke University football facility, which is uh, getting renovated right now. And it's quite impressive what they're doing to the stadium, to the campus. Um, you wouldn't think Duke University would be growing this much because it's been such a fantastic, storied, respected university for almost 5,000 years. But if you showed up right now, you'd think all of a sudden Duke is having some recent success to be able to pay for all these renovations. Well, yeah, by the way, Duke University was just in the pinstripe bowl. Um, Duke football. I, I should mention that I'm in the football facility. I know you may have heard me say Duke University. Maybe you think hoops. But no, we're talking about Duke football. I'm with assistant coach Jim Bridge. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm doing great, Adam. How are you? I'm doing wonderful, and I thank you for the tour of the facility and showing me all the new renovations. Um, and you're a new coach here. Uh, you move here from Purdue University. You've coached at NC State. You've got... Um, 
How many years of, of college coaching experience behind you? This will be my 22nd year. 22nd year with big-time Division One college football. Yes, sir. And up until uh, Duke University, coaching with um, Coach Cutcliffe, the uh, head coach here who's just turned this program around, uh, and now it's a bowl contender every year. And you look good in blue, by the way. Welcome to Duke. So uh, up until Duke, what's been your – I know it'll be hard to pinpoint, but what's been your, your favorite uh, moment as a college coach with the teams you've coached with? Well, I think some of the great wins, you know, that – stick out you know you've always had some unbelievable history you know being part of a Boston College team that you know wins at Notre Dame and the great Catholic rivalry and being part of an Ohio State team that wins at Michigan those are all really impressive and fun things to be a part of and you know those are the things that stick out Mm -hmm. is the wins of you know, over the rivals and, you know, and that, that type of deal. That's what I'll remember forever part of this game. You were on the coaching staff at Boston College when they beat, when you beat uh, Notre Dame at Notre Dame. I remember that game. Yes, uh, we beat them there a couple times, as a matter of fact. And uh, what was your role there, and who were some of the t- players on that team that went to the NFL? Well, I was uh, tight ends coach then. Um, we had um, uh, Matthias Kiwanuka, first-round draft pick, Jer- Jeremy Trueblood, second-round draft pick, um, was a quarterback by the name of Matt Ryan. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we had uh, uh, Will Blackman. Um, you know, there was a lot of great players part of that team. Well, Jim Bridge joins us, uh, football coach at uh, Duke University now. And what is your position? I'm a tight ends and special teams coordinator. Fantastic. And we bring you on the show. Uh, we love to talk about football. I'm a huge football fan, but I also like to talk about uh, character and integrity and some family issues, some social issues. Uh, coaches have a unique experience and a unique perspective on some of these social issues because, you know, I like to think sports imitates real life. So um, I guess let's start with your family, um, your kids. How many kids do you have? I have four. Four kids. That's, I mean, come on. That's, I, what? Be careful <laughs> drinking the water in my house. Yeah. And hey, what are their ages now? I have a, they finished, a, a, I have a girl who will be going into eighth in the fall a boy who will be going into fifth, a girl who will be going into third grade, and a boy who will be going into second grade next year. Well, congratulations. That's uh, four. I mean, that's a lot. I, um, you are now truly an expert on fatherhood. You know, you have one or two kids, you're, you're a dad. You have four, you're an expert. You could write a book on fatherhood. We like to talk about fatherhood on this show because it's a very important social, social issue. Um, the Jim Bridge Book of Fatherhood, what would the title of that book be? Wow. Um, Love. That would be the title of the book, Love. I absolutely love my kids. I love being around them. Um, My free time involves my kids. Every single, um, I I engross myself in their lives. Um, My daughter plays golf and you know, I carry her bag in the summer when she has tournaments. My boys play baseball and I, I live and die with every pitch that they get thrown to them and basketball and every shot and they make and don't make. And then my daughter, who's the dancer, I, I go to her dance practices and film them so we can watch them together like football coaches would do. You know, and I just love my kids and I am the most blessed man on the planet. That's inspiring. Love hearing that. Um, the, the players here uh, at Duke and the players you've coached in the past, um, I have to believe that that sort of love for your children um, is shown and your players 
can see that and recognize that, and it probably helps your relationship with them too. Well, I didn't really realize my job as a coach until I became a father 13 years ago. Then you realize that these parents that we're recruiting, we go into their homes, are handing us their most prized possession, their children. And it's our job as coaches during these unbelievable formative years of 18 to 22 to 23 years old of of being that that moral compass that that guide that you know push in the right direction that kick in the rear end that pat on the back that hug when they need it and that you know smack on the chin when they need it as well and you know it's our job to be that to be that and our these parents who sign their kids over to us and and I, I mean that figuratively not literally but they want us to be that and that's everything I realize every time I deal with somebody I realize that I'm dealing with somebody's pride and joy Jim Bridge is our guest football coach uh, assistant coach at Duke University and you bring up recruiting um, I don't know if our listeners know this but your job as a football coach in college it, it's more than 50 percent of it is spent in the world of recruiting is that right every day we recruit so so the football season is 12 weeks maybe a bowl game. So you've got 13 or 14, 15, 16 weeks out of the year, pre, you know, preseason, summer camp. So there's 20, 25 weeks, maybe half the year is playing football. So a novice like me would think the other half of the year you recruit, but you're telling me it's every day. Every day. We, you know, direct message guys on Twitter with new rules we can now text, uh, handwritten letters to kids, to parents, uh, calling high school coaches every day is recruiting. So I want to talk about recruiting real quick from two angles. One, um, character and integrity of the kid you're recruiting. But before we get to that, um, you mentioned that, that you didn't realize how, um, how important it was from recruiting or coaching until you had kids a few years ago. Did you notice that you've changed how you recruit uh, or how you talk to a parent um, before you had kids compared to now that you have kids. I mean, that, that is, you've noticed that. Absolutely. Before I didn't understand what it, I didn't understand what it would be like for a parent. And to now to ease the parent, to let the parent trust me, to help, you know, gain the parent's trust, to gain the recruit student athlete's trust. That's to me what it's all about is being able to gain trust. So do you think there was some recruits before you had kids that you lost to other schools because they were getting recruited by a guy that had kids? <laughs> I don't know. That's an interesting thought, but I know that I became better when I, 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 I realized that being a parent was the most important thing in my life. So you're recruiting a young man, and I'm sure, and this is the last thing you want to do because you want to worry about uh, their skill set on the field. Uh, equally, you want to worry about their grade point average. But now you've got to worry about what they're tweeting and putting on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I mean, how much of that do you look at? Well, we have recruiting offices who's, who help us with things like that. Um, but, but I see them. Um, and um, it's, you know, a lot of times we'll drop people off of our list um, if it's not what we would deem an appropriate tweet or an appropriate message. And, um find out if that's the character of the young man or if that was an isolated incident. Um, you know, that's all part of it. Um, but it, it's a red flag uh, that we would certainly notice. Would the young man, 
I mean, certainly he's going to realize that Duke stopped recruiting him. Would he, would he find out that it's because of what he's putting on social media? Mm, I don't – I mean, if, if I was asked directly, um, you know, uh, the nuns taught me when I was in grade school to always tell the truth because that <laughs> way you never have to remember what you said. And so I would tell them the truth, uh, you know, that that might not be the right person for us because of this reason. And maybe that would help them. But I, I wouldn't offer that until they asked me. College football players are involved with a whole lot of community service and service projects. And I know they uh, off season, there'll be a service trip to Haiti and Habitat for Humanity, stuff like that. Um, what have been some of the community service projects uh, with some of the teams that you've been with that stand out in your mind? Well, at Duke, one of the things that Coach Cutcliffe always gives us the directive of is developing of the character and giving back to the community. And we do that a lot here. Um, I know with, we have this incredible building, you know, 150 yards away uh, in the Duke Children's Hospital. Um, you know, there, there is community service involved with that, uh, food banks. Um, you never know how lucky you are until you realize that the food that you can eat for free in a training table, other people struggle to get a third of that to feed their plate. I mean, it's so food banks. Um, been part of, you know, rebuilding houses. Um, been part of, there's a, there's a group here that on Saturday mornings goes to help a group of single mothers um, in a playground there's there's an older lady in the community and one of our uh, younger coaches Pat O'Connor is big with this of you know going there and helping this older lady who relieves these single mothers and watches their kids for a couple hours on su- Saturday mornings so they can mothers can have some time to themselves and she feeds them juice boxes and stuff uh, and snacks and our players go over there and play with them i mean it's i mean duke has got a social conscience the players at Duke have a social conscience. Uh, Coach Cutcliffe has a social conscience. And um, it, it's an important part of our character development. Character and integrity and faith and family and football. We love these issues. Fatherhood from a uh, sort of a professional father because he's got four kids. It's Jim Bridge. Thank you so much for joining us on the program, and we hope to have you back sometime in the future. Thank you, Adam. The Adam Ritz Show, a reality show for your radio. Hi, this is Peter Britzkoy, and I'm reporting live from Chicago, Illinois, for the Adam Ritz Show. And I am delighted to have with me today Josh Hale, who is the executive director of the Big Shoulders Fund. Josh, thanks for coming on today. Peter, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Josh, could you tell us about Big Shoulders and what what the mission is for Big Shoulders and what it's what it's about and what the goals are? Um, sure. So like so many big cities, you know, the inner city children often have the hardest time finding a quality education. And so Big Shoulders formed 30 years ago to support inner city Catholic schools as another option for inner city children and families. And first is, how do you help keep those schools rooted in community? And so supporting them with um, how do they strengthen their academic program, their fiscal management, and outreach to the community, but also ensuring that children have access with scholarships. So we invest about $20 million each year in 82 schools supporting 21,000 children. Those children are 80% minority and about 65% living in poverty. And we have unbelievable high success rate of those kids matriculating not only into college but through college and becoming, you know, contributing members of society right here in Chicago, the future workforce we like to call it. Really? Yeah. So how does the – so do you have any, like, statistics or anything behind, like – 
the kind of kids that you help and the amount that like go to college yeah. and the amount that come on? Like, how does that work? So it's a, you know, it's evolved over time. You know, the onset of the organization 30 years ago, it's just about helping children. And while we're still about helping children, like so many other organizations, we are much more focused on where does the, the, the dollar actually go, the investment in terms of helping children to succeed? Are we delivering in the promise? And so the, the, of these 21,000 children, 80% are minority, 65% living in poverty in high-need neighborhoods, we watch the number that matriculate from elementary school to high-performing high schools, and that's usually at a rate of kids in our scholarship program, about 95%, but for all children around 80%. And then the number that go on to not only graduate high school, so high school graduation is about 95%. Really? But the number of the children that actually show up in college, which is actually more important. Everybody likes to say, well, 100% yeah. are accepted to college. But do they actually show up in college and do they succeed? Yeah. Meaning that, that we actually had them prepared to be there. And so about 87% of our students actually show up in college freshman year, the year following high school graduation, and matriculate the next year at 92%. So really? we see a very high uh, track rate. And we're tracking now in college as well. And we've done some long-term surveying. And we see that our students will graduate, are graduating college um, at rates above city, state, and national averages. So they're, they're outperforming what would be expected of children coming from these neighborhoods. Really? Yeah. So that's what I was saying. Because I, I was reading earlier that you guys have had, you guys have, for the last nine years, got a four-star rating from Charity yes. Navigator. So that's like unheard of, right? Well, not many charities get no. a four-star rating. And we work very hard at keeping that. That's you know, I think it's less than one percent of charities nationally have well, achieved that. Really? So you can look the top one percent charities I know. in the world. We don't right? want to lose that. We can't yeah. lose that streak. I, it's a uh, it's important, you know, to me personally, but also the organization that you know when you're asking someone to to give their you know earnings, what they've um, their salary and their money to give to you, to invest in helping children, you know, you want to make sure you're doing the right thing. One, that you run a very efficient organization, that you don't become a big bureaucracy and spend money on, you know, central headquarters versus the children. Yeah. And the second part that Charity Navigator and other watchdog groups look at is your outcome. So are we actually graduating high percent of the kids? Are they actually showing up in college? Are we making the difference that we stay public we're, we're focused on? Yeah, okay, because I was going to say, you guys, uh, I understood that Big Shoulders had the largest charity fundraiser, like, ever in the city of Chicago. Yes. Raising $12 million. The reason why I brought that up was, I feel like a biggest difference between, like, Big Shoulders and other organizations is not only, like, are you guys asking, like, businessmen, like, hey, like, would you mind helping us out financially? But it's more like you guys have the businessmen, like, hands-on. Like, yes. businessmen come to schools, they teach these kids about what what a stock is, what what it means to be a businessman and financially. So it's more of just, like, instead of just, hey, like, could you donate to us? It's more of just, could you actually go to the schools? Yes. Can you actually do that? What, how did, how did that come about? What was that like? Uh, you know, it's, it's a, um, I guess it's our belief, you know, and me personally, again, the organization that, you know, the, the, each one of us um, comes to this mission with the overall agreement that we want to help inner city children succeed. And we may have a little bit different reason or backdrop or things that do to help that. And so how do you take all that collective passion? So someone that's interested in helping children with financial literacy, someone that wants to help them with STEM, someone, how do you bring all those collective energies together and provide the opportunities for them to do so? And what my experience has been is that when you allow people to really get hands-on involved, they want to invest at a higher level because they can actually see their dollars going to work, making a difference. It doesn't go to some big pot. We say, thanks for the money. We'll see you next year. Yeah. And just tell them to help kids that they actually go to the schools and they see those children. They know I help support four children. I help support this classroom with new technology, and they can actually touch it and feel it and say, 
it's making a difference. So we worked very hard at saying, you know, not answer the question of where we'd like to give. Let's go out and see where the needs are, and we'd like to get your input on where you'd like to invest your dollars. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it's served us well. We've grown a lot, you know, over the last number of years, but just in the last 10, we've gone from a 5 or $6 million investment annually to over $20 million. And I think it comes a lot from people really having ownership that I can make a difference. And I think that so often in the nonprofit sector, it, you know, you can start to say, am I really making a difference? Yeah, so uh, there there are a lot of great charities in Chicago. Like, how are you guys able to get to the highest like that? Like, is it through what you just said? Like, just thinking differently and, like, doing different approaches? Or, like, how are you able to get to the highest? Well, I think it has, you know, I'd like to think it was us that we're doing. But I think it has to do with um, the mission we're focused on that right now really inner city education is a major concern, you know, in Chicago certainly, but in other cities as well, that how do we help kids we promise every citizen in this country an education that prepares them for the future, and we're, we're, we're falling woefully short in that. And so people want to find a way to, to it, so I think that helps. Well, we have a great mission. I think the second part is that we're very efficient in how we do it, that there isn't a lot of fat. You don't feel like you're losing dollars to, to paying this or paying that. It's actually going into the classroom and helping children. And I also think that um, it has to do with really smart people on our board and our donors that are engaged, that they tell their friends, they go out there and say, I actually am making a difference. I can be part of this. And so I think those three things make a big part of why we're succeeding. Um, giving people the ability to, to really be hands-on involved, being efficient and not getting over our skis, and not losing focus that this is about kids. This is not about Josh Hale or somebody else on the board or anything else. It's about kids and staying focused. But it's a lot of hard work, I can tell you that, for uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, so I was, how, how many programs do you have with Big Shoulders right now? So like, we, within your, within for like, kids to be involved, yeah. So we invest in four key areas at a macro level. So access, which is scholarships and enrichment for children. The second area is academics, which is to do with how do we um, support teachers in the classroom to make it um, more holistic but also uh, more impactful. And then we invest in the business side of the schools, which is, you know, at the end of the day, these schools are one to one and a half million dollar businesses with cash flow and savings and long-term planning. And so how do we help the schools to run the business side? And then the, the fourth area is leadership. Leadership for big shows and leadership for the schools. Now underneath those, each one, there's hundreds of programs. So for example, the scholarships, we have over 5,000 children on scholarship, which is definitely the largest scholarship program here, but it probably is nationally as well. Really? Yeah, so you're not just paying for like kids' scholarships. You're paying teacher salaries. You're help making improvements on the building. You're yep. help with everything, right? Yeah, so, like, for example, in academics, we have a, a science initiative focused on early childhood. So how do we help teachers to be more supported in teaching science to young learners or math to young learners? And we have a program around literacy, so helping to improve literacy outcomes. And so that's providing curriculum, coaching, and everything else. We have scholarship programs, 70 of them. Some of them are, you know, you get a scholarship with a mentor, and at the other end of the extreme, some of them you get a scholarship, and you get to go to school two Saturdays a month which is, can you imagine being back in high school yeah. on Saturday? And these kids want it. They actually go, and it's all this money deep in. Yeah, and so they really want to be part of it. So we have hundreds of programs, and uh, the programs are all focused outward bound in the schools. And so it's uh, we have a staff of about 25 people that are the, are charged with with managing all that. Wow, okay. So you, you had mentioned the science program. What is the, the Bush Creek science program? I heard, of the, I heard of that when I was researching you guys. I didn't quite... 
you send these people to, to Wyoming, right? That's exactly right. So what happens there? So it's a program that I wish I had in my school when I was growing yeah. up. It's phenomenal. <laughs> Never so got to travel when I was there. Um, it was a, a couple, Beth and Bruce White, really, who who own significant uh, property and in, in acreage out in Wyoming. And they had built a resort. They're in the hotel um, hospitality industry. And they built a resort out there. And on the property, they thought, you know what, we should also build something for children. And they'd been long time involved with us. And so they really had this vision of how would you use this space? What would you use it for if we built a camp for you to bring kids out? And in working with them, we started developing strategies and theories. And, you know, where we started is probably not where we ended up. Yeah. But the idea was always around bringing kids out of the element of the inner city out to the wilderness. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a little culture Huge. shock, right? Like, culture shock. Yeah. For me, too, frankly, yeah. <laughs> going into, as, a, as a cliff dweller here in the city. Yeah. But these kids, for the most part, it's their first time going on a plane. It's first time going anyplace like this. And they go out there to um, the plains of, of, of uh, Wyoming. And so it sounds like a great trip, but in order to get into it, they had to apply. And then they had to, the year leading up to the summer trip they take out there, the week-long trip they take, they spend preparing. So there's chapters on astronomy, there's chapters on uh, water quality, um, there's chapters on uh, the Western movement, the history behind it. There's um, chapters on leadership. And so they do all this prep work in the months leading up to it. So again, Saturday school, after school, and blogging with teachers and doing field trips. And then we go out there, the, the, the classes they take, so in the morning they take classes. We work with um, federal agencies like Department of Forestry, Field and Stream, and other agencies out there to teach classes in the morning. In the afternoon they do a fun activity, mountain bike riding, horseback riding, archery, things like that. And then at night they do something that's kind of around leadership or around... Um, the, the history of moving out there, and obviously astronomy because you have all these stars that we don't see here in yeah. Chicago. But these kids, so now it, it started out with the first trip was about 20 kids now for one week, and now we do six-week-long trips really? with about 230 really? children that go out there every year now. Yeah, that was a big show. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And it bigger. is. It's just every year. I'm trying getting... to get into this uh, Brush Creek trip as well. Really? Yeah, the Staddle <laughs> Camp. It's unbelievable. I mean, to see these kids... Um, fly out to Denver, get in a bus, and then take a three and a half, four hour ride up to Wyoming. Nothing like that. Anyone's it goes fly the bus. Yeah. I mean, you're going by these mountains and hills, and they see, you know, um, elk running around and deer and yeah. um, all sorts of wildlife to them. It's horses and cows and steer. It's, uh, you know, for any of us, I think, if you haven't been out there, it's pretty remarkable. Okay, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. And then, uh, sorry, a couple, quick, quick, couple more questions. Uh, the stock market program, what yes. happens there? Well, stock market program is one of my favorite programs because it, really? you know, I, well, because it's the, um, you know, sometimes uh, programs can become so laden with bureaucracy and costs that you can't do it effectively. What I love about the stock market program is it is unbelievably efficiently developed. And it started with one guy who said, I want to help kids understand how you actually accumulate wealth, how you save, and, um, and how, what sort of job opportunities are in that community. And it really started with his focus in the African-American community where they have... Um, you know, low participation in savings, low participation in investing, in the finance field. And from one person going to one school in the south side of Chicago, that has inspired um, about 50 other companies to follow his lead. And now we have thousands of eighth graders every year getting the benefit of a teacher or teachers coming from a downtown business into their classroom and, and following a curriculum that helps these children understand uh, investing, but also what, you know, just broadening the horizons. What are the job opportunities? It doesn't mean that everybody's going to be a stockbroker. Maybe they end up banking. They might end up um, as an accountant. They might end up, um, 
you know, in any number of fields. Or maybe they did nothing, but they, it's, a, it's another option that they didn't know about yeah. before this class that they now know. And so we track these kids now, and we will know where they go into. And I think we have, from one of the first graduating classes, a young man from the south side of Chicago, had no understanding of finance or anything else, just graduated Georgetown. No way. He's a finance major. and from uh, Georgetown. Yeah, top wow. of the field, and, and you know he's going into the finance field now. And that's that's a remarkable. That's a long trip from you know South Chicago to you know kind of the top of the finance yeah. world. But is so, that is that just what you like? You look back on and it's like and that's this is why I do it. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> and I think that's why going back to why do people get involved and why we've grown? Because I think people see you know the impact that Chad Brinskoy had from that one classroom to inspiring you know um, hundreds of others to say, hey, I can do this too. And it's low cost, you know, for three thousand dollars. You form the investment community in a school, and wow. then it's just sharing your time once a month, going out there for a couple hours to teach the class. Wow, that's truly amazing. No bureaucracy, no uh, lots of you know um, rules and regulations. Just go out and you know meet with kids. And I think that what teachers find is they generally get more out of it, um, or they think more out of it than the kids. I suspect the kids get more out of it. But yeah, it's that, very fulfilling to see that. That's really amazing. So if someone wanted to, we'll kind of wrap this up right now. So if somebody wanted to. Uh, to help uh, uh, Big Shoulders. How would they be able to donate? So, for one, we have a great website at bigshouldersfund.org, which gives all sorts of ways to, um, to offer, you know, if you want to volunteer, but also if you want to make a donation, there's a page you can go and, and click that, and you can designate your gift in any way. But also, somebody calling us on the phone, one of our uh, team would love to take anybody out to a school to get to know it. That's our, really our first goal. I think that you know, people just say, well, I'm just going to give because I heard this Josh Shields. I'd rather you go out and see a school, get to know our program, say, uh, calling or emailing me or going to our website, anyway, along those lines, and we'll find a way to get everybody involved. The Adam Ritz Show is recorded live, both in studio and across the country. For information on this broadcast, including how to hear this show on a station in your city, visit adamritzshow.com.